Um, one announcement, uh, if you're going to donate with the baby bottles, we have two more weeks, okay? Take a bottle home if you haven't taken one to fill it with coins. If you're Lauren Senior, it'd be gold and silver. Uh, no, that's Dan, I forgot, Dan, yeah. They're like, no, don't tell people, no. Um, and then bring it back and we'll collect those and send them off to Thrive. Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to John 6. I want to return to this passage we looked at it two weeks ago because last week we were snowed out, iced out, something happened. And I won't read through the whole thing because it's very long. We read through it before, but I'll be, we'll be looking at different sections of John 6. Uh, if you remember the story, Jesus... Um, in the early part of John, feeds the 5,000, and then he leaves the area, and people follow Jesus, those who had seen the miracle and had partaken of the bread, uh, the fish and the bread, they, they leave, they follow Jesus, they find Jesus. It says in verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, but not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every word is true. We thank you that your word is uh, spiritual, that we need spiritual eyes and ears to understand it. So we Beseech you now, Lord, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that he would instruct us, enlighten us, open our eyes, open our hearts to hear, to, uh, to receive, to believe, to obey. We ask, Lord, that you would have your way here today, that your mind and heart would be expressed, and we would hear it and receive it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, as, we, as I pointed out before in John 6, Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, and as I pointed out last time, Jesus was not speaking about his flesh and blood in a physical sense, meaning you, you literally eat it, you literally drink it. He was rather talking about um, the fact that his flesh and blood were to be given for the life of the world. He says here, notice in um, verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Jesus is referring here uh, to his blood, his flesh, his blood, 
Um, not in the sense of cannibalism, of course, but in the sense of it being given for the life of the world, meaning given in a sacrificial sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Not just gave as a teacher or as an instructor or as a model or as a prophet, but he gave his son as a sacrifice for sin. So his body is broken and his blood is shed. So this is what Jesus means by his, his, uh, him being the bread that is given for the life of the world. Now he says that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And as we saw before, he's not talking about or was not talking about the Lord's Supper. And there was a lot of confusion regarding that over the years. We discussed the, the, the fact that um, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. You could say it's a sacrificial feast where we remember and rejoice in what Jesus did for us in dying for our sins. Amen? But we, the, the, the bread doesn't become his literal body and the wine doesn't become his literal blood. The bread is bread, the wine is wine, but they are emblems. They, they are signs that signify something else. So um, when Jesus here says we have to eat his flesh or eat his body, we have to drink his blood, what does he mean? Well, he tells us what he means. He says that we have to come to him and we have to believe. Uh, look, let's start at 33 again. Notice he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So the idea of eating and drinking corresponds to the idea of coming and believing. So again, Jesus is speaking figuratively, right? Not a literal eating or drinking, but figuratively eating and drinking, meaning we must come to Jesus and we must believe in him. So we have to eat his flesh, drink his blood, and we do this by coming to him and believing in him. But it means believing in him as the bread given for the life of the world, meaning we believe in him as the sacrifice for our sins. In other words, we receive eternal life from Christ through faith. So the question then becomes, what is faith? Notice here that uh, Jesus says in 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So let's discuss uh, this morning briefly uh, the subject of faith. And the first point I want to make is that faith is not a work. Faith is not a work. Now I want you to notice here, Jesus says in verse 29, that this is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he sent. Not this is the work of man, but this is the work of God. Now, if I say to you, are you a Christian? And you say, yes. And, and, I, and I say, well, how do you know? You say, because I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus died for me on the cross. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Are you saying that your faith is a work? Are you saying your faith saves you? Or does Jesus save you? When we look at Scripture, well, let me just say this first. Faith works, but is not a work. Faith works, but is not a work. And we'll unpack this as we go forward. All throughout Scripture, what we see is that faith is actually opposed to works. And let's look at a few texts. Go to Romans 3 for a moment. Romans chapter 3. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just... God, be, God is the one who's just, and God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Chapter 4. Where do we start? Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him, or reckoned to him, or counted to him, depending on your version, for righteousness. Notice he believed God, and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but of debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Um, let's look at Galatians 2.16. This is the, actually the very first verse I ever memorized as a baby Christian. Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man, woman, person, humankind, humanoid, not robots, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even as, as we have believed in Jesus Christ, 
that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So Paul says three times here that we are justified, we could say saved, if you want to use that word. Not that we are, three times he says it's by faith and twice he says it's not by works. So he's, he's just falling over himself. He says it positively, he says it negatively, he says it over and over, for, as he says in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved. Well, no, I want you to read it in your Bible. You probably have it memorized, but I want you to read it in your Bible. Go to Ephesians 2. He says this, he says, verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by works, but we do good works. Faith is not a work. So we, we need to clarify what we mean by work, though, because um, work can mean one of two things. Work can mean religious works. So some people believe that they're saved by uh, various rituals or sacraments, uh, whether it's communion or baptism or saying the rosary or attending mass or reading your Bible or, or even prayer, that these things save Okay, they have some saving merit in them. Uh, now, there may be benefits to them, but a benefit is different than merit. Okay, merit's the key issue. Because merit uh, refers to the question of our, our standing before God. Do we earn our standing before God? Do we merit our salvation? And the biblical answer is no, we do not merit by religious works. Now, to the Jew, it would have been the sacrifices, it would have been the festivals, and other things of that nature, alms, etc. But works can also be used in the sense of moral works, or what we might say is, is conformity to the Ten Commandments, um, being good, we would say. The reason moral works do not save us is because our moral works are not perfect. Um, we have to understand the law is good, but we are not. The law is good, but we are not. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 7 when he's making clear that although we're saved by grace, he's not denigrating the law. The law was given by God. The law is a good thing. He says in Romans 7 in uh, verse 12, Therefore the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just, and good. Well, the problem is, is that good thing produces evil in me because I am fallen. Okay? How then what is good, has then what is good become death to me? He says, certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. So it is through the law that we have the knowledge and the revelation of our sinfulness. If, if there were no commandment, there'd be no transgression. 
Paul says in, in Romans 4. So the law reveals our fallen nature. The law, the law does not redeem our fallen nature. The law does not renew our fallen nature. If you give the law to someone who is unregenerate, they might change a few things in life, they might clean up their act a bit, but they will never fully conform to the law. Because as the Paul says here, the law is spiritual. To really fulfill the law, what is the first commandment of the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and your soul. Amen? An unregenerate person doesn't love God. They cannot. It's not in their heart to do so. So they can't fulfill the law. Even this most fundamental principle, they cannot fulfill it. Even if they conform, even if they conformed externally. So works do not save because the law does not save, and it was never designed to save. So why did God give it? He gave it to reveal our nature and to reveal his will. In Galatians chapter 4, if you want to turn there quickly, Paul is... is, uh, Addressing this very question of, okay, Paul, if we're saved by grace through faith, then why did God give the law uh, in the first place? He says this in 4.17. Well, at, well, first of all, after saying that, uh, verse 11, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for the just shall live by faith. Okay, so he's making clear the law does not save. He says, okay, well, then why did God do this? He said this elaborate system not only gave us the moral law, but then he gave Israel all of these commandments and these sacrifices. What's all this about? 17, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, um, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect, meaning the law came after the promise to Abraham. Read your Bible, right? Abraham's in Genesis, the law's in Exodus. So God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham was reckoned righteous by faith, in, in, as was recorded in Genesis. That promise is the promise that we enter into as believers. And he says the law given years later does not annul that promise. Verse 19, logical question. Then what? Well, purpose then does the law serve if it does if it, if it doesn't annul the promise if it doesn't change the promise then why did God give it he says uh, 21 is the law then against the promises of God certainly not for if there had been a law given which could have given life truly righteousness would have been by the law but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to Christ, or to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was to aid faith, not to replace faith. 
And it aided faith two ways. It aided faith by, if you really studied the law, you see Jesus in the law. You see him in the sacrifices. You see him in the, uh, the symbols of the temple. You see him all over in the law. So it revealed Jesus that way. But the law also, that's the ceremonial law. The moral law showed us our sin. In other words, it showed us our need for Jesus. You know why people don't come to Jesus when you share the gospel? They don't believe they're sinners. Now, I read a lot of news, and I, don't, I can't remember the last time I saw the word sin. No, seriously. We have horrendous, the horrendous shooting in Florida. Tragic, right? Tragic. None of the headlines said shooter sins against so-and-so. We use the word evil, horrendous evil, horrific evil. But we won't use the word sin. Because sin is something you, is a, is a, not just a crime, a sin is an offense against God. Men may define crime, God defines sin. And so we refuse to admit that we are fallen in spite of the, the evidence, the daily evidence. You know, the irony to me is, it, you know, of all the different doctrines in the Bible, the one doctrine that we have the most evidence for is the man's fallenness. I mean, every day, just read the news. Um, yet, yet the irony is, is that the very nature, nature of our fallenness blinds us to seeing the evidence. And so people still insist man is basically, people are basically good. And so we have to come up with all these explanations about why so-and-so did something so evil. Um, rather than saying, well, you know, he has an evil heart. And, you know, maybe he, because he was treated this way or treated that way, that he, it inclined him to do this or that. But the fact of the matter is, he has an evil heart. And the Bible says we all have evil hearts. Every one of us. No matter how good we are, we are all fallen. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. There's none righteous, no, not one. So <clears throat> the law is good, and we are not. So in Scripture, works are not sufficient for eternal life. We must believe. But the other point I want to make is that although faith is opposed to works, faith also works. Faith also works. This is the point of James 2. And I want to turn to James 2 because James appears to be contradicting Paul, but if properly understood, he's not. You there in James 2? For what does it profit, oh, excuse me, verse 14, 214. For what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now notice he's opposing says to what he does, right? Says to what he does, to work. Say, saying he has faith versus the works which would demonstrate that faith. 
If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for them, for the, excuse me, for the body, what does it profit? So, okay, somebody walks in, they're literally destitute. So we say, God, God loves you. God bless you. I'll pray for you. And out they go, just as poor and broken as when they walked in. Is that faith? No, it's pretension. It's saying things that sound like faith, but it's not a demonstration of faith, right? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, notice the word say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You can't show somebody your faith without works. You can't do it. You can, you can assert you have faith. You can scream it. From the, from the, I have faith. You can say it, but you don't see faith, right? Because the principle of the heart, it's a disposition of the soul. How do I know if someone has faith? How do I know if I have faith? James is telling us the way that you know is by how you live. That's how we know. Not by what we say. You believe there's one God. That's good. That's good. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith that works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, this is the only place in Scripture where you'll see this phrase justified by works in, the sense, in a positive sense. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made mature, perfect, or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So James is quoting the same scripture Paul is. And Paul argues from that scripture that we are saved by faith. James quotes it and says that faith produces works. Are you saved by faith? Are you saved by works? Are you saved by both? That's the question. You see then, 24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So what's going on here? Is the, is the scripture contradicting itself? Here's the thing to understand. Paul tells us how we are saved. By faith. James tells us, or answers the question, what is faith? They're addressing different topics, both related to salvation. If, if, if you say you are saved by faith, the question becomes, Okay, well, what is faith then? 
we have to clarify what's called the ground of salvation versus the condition of salvation. The ground of salvation is Jesus Christ and his atonement. We are saved by grace through faith. In one sense, we're not saved by faith at all. We're saved by Jesus and what Jesus did. That's the basis. If, when we think of our faith saving us, we, we can slip into thinking that our faith is a work. It's not a work. It's a condition. Okay? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his atonement on the cross is what saves us. Jesus saves. Amen? Jesus saves us. Well, how, okay, Jesus, Jesus says, said, I'm the bread. Well, how do I get the bread? How do I get to eat the bread? He's the bread. I'm not the bread. But how do I get the bread? He says, come to me and eat. In other words, believe. Come and believe. That's how you get to eat the bread. But the coming and the believing doesn't save you. The bread saves you. When you're eating and your stomach's full, what filled your stomach? The chewing or the food? The food. The food fills you, and the food gives you the nutrients, not the chewing. Some people don't even chew. They just... <laughs> the ground of our salvation is Jesus Christ and his atoning work. The condition of our salvation is faith in that work. Go back to Romans 3 for a moment. Where Paul says in 23 that we're, we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. We're justified how? Freely. By his grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth as a propitiation. So the ground of our salvation is Jesus Christ. And that in his death he redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he propitiated God's anger. That's the ground. And that is a gift. It's given. That's why Paul talks about grace freely. It's given. It's offered. But, he says, through faith, we benefit from that, that atonement through faith. But the faith is the hand, and I would add the empty hand, that receives the offered bread. Imagine you were sitting on the seaside there in Galilee and Jesus broke the bread and, and multiplied the fishes and you're sitting out in the crowd and, and they're passing the baskets and the loaves and you said, you know what, thanks, but I'm not hungry. The bread was offered and not received, right? The bread of life is offered. How is it received? We must come, Jesus says, and believe. Or figuratively eat and drink. We don't physically eat and drink. But we can't come and we can't believe. So again, this brings us back to this question of then, what is faith? What is faith? Well, Paul, excuse me, James is pointing out that there are different kinds of faith. And there's three kinds, at least in the Bible. One he is a dead faith. This is what he's talking about. A dead faith is a faith that does not have works. Thus, a dead faith is not really faith. Not in, in the sense of saving. It is not saving faith. It is a profession of faith, but it's not saving faith. 
So we can say we believe, but if there's no evidence through the works in our life, then James says that's not saving faith. It's dead faith. And then he refers to a demonic faith. He says even, even the devils believe, right? And they tremble. They've got, they believe because they, they know. It's interesting, I was reading in Luke the other day, and uh, right after Jesus, was it when he walked on the way? He did a miracle, and then the, the, the disciples say to themselves, who is this man? And then literally a couple verses later, Jesus meets all these demons, and they say, you are the Son of God. His disciples didn't know, but they knew. And they tremble at the thought of it. But are they saved? No. And then we have dynamic faith, which is saving faith. You could call it divine faith. The faith with God, which God works into our hearts to believe in Jesus. And lastly, this brings us to the, to the, the when, we, when we ask ourselves, what is faith, to, to the elements of faith. And I'll cover this quickly. But uh, theologians argue between are there two elements to faith or are there uh, three elements to faith? Yeah, you can go either way. But the three elements that are generally mentioned are this. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We can see these three in Romans 10. Let's turn there quickly. In Romans 10... He says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So Paul, Paul mentions hearing, which is knowledge. Then he talks about believing, which is assent. But then he talks about calling on the Lord, which is really trust. Let me try to clarify briefly. Uh, when we talk about knowledge, we mean the object of our faith. Now, um, we can get confused and we think that the intensity of faith is, is the, the, thing, the important thing. And so so we, people are sincere. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, I believe that if someone's really sincere, God will let them into heaven. Just so they're sincere. So I guess that would mean a sincere Muslim or a sincere Buddhist or a sincere atheist, as long as they're sincere. Sincerity, then, is like a kind of faith. The problem is, is that the, the value of our faith depends on the value of the object of our faith. And so this is where knowledge comes in. You have to have the appropriate object of your faith to be saved. There are many gods, Paul says, and many lords. And in his day, there were many. Um, and some called on Zeus, and some on uh, Jupiter, and some on Venus, and some on Diana. Many gods, many lords. 
But being false gods, it, made, it therefore means they had a false faith. Even though they were sincere. Even though their devotion may have been intense. Paul even says, in Acts, he says, I see that you are all very religious. Very religious. Very sincere. But he says, I'm here to tell you, you are sincerely wrong. I admire your sincerity. I admire your devotion. I admire your intensity. But you're sincerely wrong. Don't you have a certain admiration for the, for the Muslim who will put bombs on his body and go and blow himself up for his God? Well, that's more devotion than we see in most Christians. Laying down his life. It's sincere, but it's sincerely wrong. So we needed the right object of, of our faith. So we need knowledge. But then we must assent that that, that knowledge of the object is true. Now, I don't know about you, but I knew the elements of the gospel many years before I believed the gospel was true. Matter of fact, I knew the elements of the gospel and argued against the gospel. So I had knowledge, but not assent. See the difference? I knew it, but I didn't agree to it. So you, you have to have the knowledge, the proper knowledge, but then once you have the knowledge, you have to assent to the knowledge. You have to say, this is true. Or should I say, he is true. Christ is true. But even that is not enough. Because once you say Christ is true, then you must call upon him, or you must trust, or you must rely. And we, we today often, you hear people talk about the distinction between the head and the heart. The real distinction is between the intellect and the will. This is the distinction that the, the divines make, theologians make, is that we must have the appropriate knowledge, we must assent to it, and that it's an intellectual exercise, but we must will. We must embrace Christ, and this is an act of the volition or the will. I've met many people who say they're Christians, and when you talk to them, it's clear that they have knowledge and they have assent, but they, have, they do not have the will. They have not personally relied on Jesus Christ. They have not personally surrendered their lives to him. They have not personally believed. So do you say, well, do they have faith? Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. They have a dead faith. They have what some theologians call a historical faith. They, they know the facts of Jesus' life, they know his claims, and they say, I believe that that is true, or I believe that he is true. Same way they might know the facts about Abraham Lincoln, and they say, I believe that he was a good person, I believe in him. Well, you can't believe in him, you can believe about him. And so some people who, th who think the Christians are believing about Jesus but they're not believing in Jesus. They're not trusting. They have knowledge. They may even have assent, but they do not have trust. So we must know the gospel. We must assent to its truth but in the sense of being persuaded, but then we must, with our will, we must embrace the truth and embrace Jesus Christ. Now when you think, go back to John 6 and think about when Jesus talked about eating and drinking, what is more like intimate than shoving something in your mouth? No, really. Think about it. 
you can't do it from afar. You can't eat dinner by looking at pictures of Whoppers. <laughs> you can't eat the food in a TV commercial. You can look, and maybe you drool. But you have to take the thing and shove it in your mouth. You must embrace it. You know what I'm saying? Embrace it. Same way with Jesus. It's not enough to have knowledge of the gospel scheme, to be persuaded that it is true, but we must take Jesus, we must embrace him, or rely upon him, or trust him, or roll our way upon him, or cast ourselves upon him. All of these are biblical figures with an act of our will in order to be saved. That is the modern distinct between the head and the heart, or the older distinct between the intellect and the will. Many Christians are 18 inches from hell because they know a Jesus in their intellect that they have not embraced with their will. And I believe this is true, especially of, of many young Christians, young people who grew up in a Christian home, and they hear the gospel from infancy, and they make a profession when they're young, and they get baptized when they're young, and they go through all of the motions, and, and in fact, they don't know Jesus in a personal way. Of course, there's many old Christians that way, too. We have churches full of professing Christians who are unregenerate. And so the intellect has been informed, but the will has not been moved. I had dinner on, uh, on the 99th floor of the, of the Twin Towers when I was dorting my wife. You know what dorting is? That's dating and courting together. I'd like to write a book called Dorting. I think it would sell. People would definitely pick it up and look at the cover. Dorting? What's that? Anyway. You couldn't get to the 101st floor because they wouldn't let you go up any higher. So we were on the highest floor. This is before it was taken down on 9-11. I was thinking, and, and so there was a nice jazz band. The food, you know, it's like outright expensive. And, and all these windows up there so you could see New York City at nighttime. It's really impressive, you know. And I was thinking, what if they had a little walkway from one tower to the other? And I thought, you know, let's say they go to each table and say, would you like to take a walk to the other tower? It's reliable. They explain the construction. You go look out the window, you see the walk. People are walking back. So you have knowledge of the walkway. And based on everything you can see with your eyes, you're persuaded that it's reliable. Do you think I would go on that thing? No. Now, maybe you would. But I have an irrational fear of heights. I, can, I get up two stories and I'm already like, nah. Okay. There is no way, even though I knew it was true, I know it's true that that thing can hold me up. There is no way I would get on it. My intellect says one thing, my will says another. And my will wins. 
my will wins. I won't go on it. I don't care. You can take a herd of elephants across that thing. I still will not walk on that thing. It's because other motives, listen, other motives are operating on me besides just my reason. And in this case, it's my irrational fear of heights. So people hear the gospel and they know, they understand it. They might even say, yes, it's, that's, it's, it's true. it makes sense. I see it. It's a lot. Yeah. Then why don't they get out on the walkway? Because other motives are shaping their will, affecting their will. We don't have time, but read, this, read the parable of the sower and the seeds and read all three versions. And Jesus talks about this, how the seed is sown, the gospel sown, and the different reasons people don't, don't receive it. And only, only one of the four really receives it, accepts it, keeps it, and grows and bears fruit. Because you have the weeds, you have the stony ground, you have Satan. There's a lot of things operating in the spiritual realm. There's many things that work in the human heart to keep the heart from embracing Jesus. So, Jesus says we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which means we not only need to understand his death for our sins, but we need to embrace him with an act of the will. I remember this clearly, and I'll close with this. When I became a Christian, I remember clearly gaining the knowledge that I was reading the Bible before I was saved. And then I remember clearly realizing that I actually believed it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was like a conscious thing, like, oh my gosh, this, this stuff's really true. And it was blowing my mind. But there was another step it was the therefore step. When I realized, like, oh my gosh, not only this is true, but oh my gosh, since this is true, therefore. Since this is true, Jesus is who he claims to be. He really died for my sins on that cross. He's really alive today because he rose from the dead. Therefore, he's really my Lord, and I should bow the knee to him. Therefore, what am I going to do with that? And that's where I had to make a choice of the will. And I'm so glad that, that I came to Jesus at a time when I, when I could, could experience that process and understand that process. So we must, to say we must believe in Jesus is true, but we must understand what we're saying when we believe. We must believe in the right Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, the one who is alive now, the one who's seated on, at the right hand of God now, the one who is Lord now, the one who deserves all of our praises now, amen, now, because he's alive, and therefore the one who I can personally trust in now because he's alive. I don't just believe about him the way I believe about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. I believe in him because he's now alive. I can entrust myself to him. I can submit my will to him as my Lord and Savior. Amen? Because he's alive.
Yeah, and we need to do it every day. Take up the cross daily and follow him. And that's the rub right there. Man, I could preach for another hour, but I better not. (laughs) This is the rub, my friend. Jesus said that the seed that is is sown in, in the one ground, for a while it bears fruit. And in one of the, one, I think it might be in the Luke version, it even says that the person believes. Ah, but then there's trials. And there's temptations. And they stumble, they're offended. In other words, the Christian life gets hard, and all of a sudden you lose friends, and all of a sudden you're not cool, and all of a sudden you're not hip anymore. Because the hip thing is to, to believe this and endorse this and do this. And so, so now all of a sudden you lose the favor of man. You no longer get the praise of man. And so you have to begin to count the cost. That, there's a, that, that, that although you're gaining eternal life and you're gaining Jesus, you're also losing something. You may lose friends. You may lose family members. You may lose a job. You may lose your wealth. Some Christians lose their lives even today. Some will die this very day. For Jesus. But I've seen many Christians, professing Christians, some of them sat in this church for years, who've walked away from the faith because it got hard. They couldn't or wouldn't, they wouldn't stand against the pressures of, of the world. And they conformed to the spirit of the age and the philosophy of the world. And they're, they're professing now things which are clearly contrary to Scripture and everything they used to say they believed. There's a cost. And the cost is your life. But the trade-off is life for life. Life for life. You get eternal life. Jesus gets our paltry, temporary life. You may lose the temporary life. Matter of fact, Jesus encourages us to lose it. Lose your life that you gain true life. Right? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Imagine you had all the wealth and all the fame and all the praise, but you lose your soul. Then you're a loser thereby, Jesus says. Because the soul is more valuable than anything and everything the world can offer. That is true of your soul, and that's true of the souls of the people you know. And that's why, as God's people, we need to be sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel, because those souls are valuable to God. Not because they're good, but simply because God has chosen to redeem fallen man. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray.